This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on is we're talking about the $300 billion in Russian assets that have been frozen since the war in Ukraine began in Western banks here in the United States and in Europe and in other places around the world, and what to do with them. There's legislation in Congress called the Repo Act, which would authorize the president of the United States to seize those assets and to give them to Ukraine to uh, use for uh, whatever its purposes are to reconstruct the country. I think we possibly could be used for for military purposes as well. And so we decided... This is a really complicated issue. There's arguments for and against this. We're we're in favor of it. Um, but we decided to invite the best international lawyer uh, we know. And the best international lawyer we know also happens to be married to my co-host, Danielle Fletka, Stephen Rademacher. Uh, so we're, gonna, we're having Danny's husband on the podcast. So we'll give you a little insight into what the uh, dinner table conversations are like at the Fletka-Rademacher household. Okay, this is actually what our dinner com- table conversations are like. This is <laughs> you are such geeks. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, look, the reason we wanted to talk about this is because the question of spending U.S. taxpayer dollars on Ukraine has become fraught. Now, Mark has made extraordinarily eloquent and I think very persuasive uh, uh, arguments in the, in the Washington Post and elsewhere uh, on Fox News about this. But I think that, you know, the idea that somehow U.S. taxpayer dollars, hey, let's let them flow, and $300 billion in Russian assets are sitting there protected, you know, oh, God forbid we should touch this precious foreign money, is is a little bit ridiculous. I will tell you, Mark, um, and I'm actually sorry now that I didn't ask Stephen about this, one of my... You know where to find him. I, I, I do, but I do, but I can't, get him, I can't get him back on the recording. One of the things that has been really, really high on my ranting, writing agenda over the last few years has been corruption. And the thing that has always irritated the hell out of me is that somebody dies. Idi Amin, you know, Mobutu, Gaddafi, and within moments, everybody says, well, we are outraged. He's a thief and he has billions and billions of dollars in foreign bank accounts, blah, 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 blah. Okay, if we knew that, and obviously we knew that, why didn't we do something about that? So apropos of that, Vladimir Putin is a massive kleptocrat. As Alexei Navalny exposed, which is one of the reasons why he was in prison, because he and, and Vladimir Karamuza and Bill Browder exposed the corruption of the Putin regime and his cronies. So one of the things that I want to see us do is not simply go after Russian state sovereign assets, and that's the $300 billion you're talking about. I wish that we were going after Putin's assets. Now, Putin hides them in other people's names, you know, his chef, his chauffeur, whoever it is. But at the end of the day, that's the Russian people's money, and it should be the Ukrainian people's money. Um, And 
I really wish that we could we could get that as well. Well, so we're, so what you're saying is there's more than three hundred billion dollars in assets to be had. Uh, I'm in favor of all of that. Yeah, so let's do it. But you know, the arguments against this are uh, this argument of sovereign immunity, which is the idea that okay, you know, state assets are protected differently than the assets. I mean, we see assets of oligarchs all the time. You know, you've seen cases of, you know, some oligarchs, uh, you know, mega yacht in, in Monte Carlo being seized and, and sold off uh, and given to given to Ukraine and all the rest of that. That's one thing. When you start seizing state assets that are in, in international banks, well, you know, there's this principle of sovereign immunity that, well, they could do it to us. We don't want to start an economic, global economic war where everybody's seizing each other's assets and all the rest of it. And so there's a practical argument. And then there's the principle argument, which is we as conservatives believe in sovereignty. We believe in, you know, unlike the globalists uh, who want to have world government and take down borders and all the rest of that and give power to the UN, we actually believe in state sovereignty. We believe that, you know, our sovereignty is is something we protect. We don't want to degrade the principle of, of state sovereignty. Well, the answer to that is, what did, the, what did the Russians do when they invaded Ukraine? They violated Ukraine's sovereignty. They invaded a, a sovereign nation and tried to seize the entire country. So if the Russians could go and try and seize the entire country of Ukraine, what is wrong with turning around and saying, no, we're going to seize $300 billion of your assets and give it to Ukraine in reparation for the damage you did to them? Right. No, look, this makes perfect sense. Let me put in a footnote here. I freaking hate that uh, expression, globalist. Um, it well because it's been changed well, by by the populace. Because what what they what they have done, and this is something actually, I wrote a piece in two thousand in foreign policy, uh, taking on the globalists. And what globalism used to mean was, you know, the people who believe in world government. The people who believe that we that the United Nations is sovereign and that we can't do anything without the permission of the United Nations and permission of international institutions. And the populist right has taken that term and turned it into anything that involves internationalism. And so that's I I still hold on to the real meaning of globalism. I'm anti-globalist, but I'm not anti-international. I believe in conservative internationalism, but we digress. Right. Okay, but you know, it has the way that that some people use it. It has real nasty anti-Semitic overtones. It's kind of like cosmopolitan in the olden days. So I I hate that term. Period. End of story. Anyway, now that you and I have had this out, and you have uh, boldly taken back uh, globalism uh, to its original meaning, um, (laughs) (laughs) why don't we talk to our guest? Stephen Rademacher is currently Senior of Counsel at Covington & Burling, one of Washington's most prominent law firms. He has uh, lots of experience working on national security issues. I can't believe I have to read this from the paper. I don't actually have to read it from the paper. Uh, he's worked uh, both for the National Security Council and for the Congress, for the Senate, and for the House of Representatives. At Covington, Stephen helps clients navigate international policies, sanctions issues, and CFIUS. And we should note, he is a registered lobbyist on these issues that he's talking about with us today. He lobbies Congress on issues like the Repo Act. So FYI to everybody. Here's our interview. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Mark. It's great to have you. So, you know, we've got Ukraine aid held up in the House right now. 
and there's this pot of $300 billion in Russian assets sitting out there waiting to be taken. And there's a debate over whether it should be done, how it could be done. You're an expert in this area. Explain to us, first of all, what's going on with these assets and how they would be seized if Congress were to decide to do that. Sure. So it's a very interesting issue. Immediately after the invasion occurred in, in uh, February of two years ago now, the United States and all of the governments in Europe, including the government of Switzerland, which had never done anything like this before, all froze the assets of the Russian Federation that were within their their jurisdiction. Isn't Switzerland where everybody always went to put their assets so they wouldn't be seized? Exactly. I mean, that, I, I think nobody saw Switzer, <laughs> even Switzerland uh, freezing Russian assets because Switzerland was, you know, that was where you took your assets when, when uh, you needed absolute security. But I don't think Vladimir Putin saw this coming. I mean, he, he thought he was sitting on about $600 billion that he could draw on to conduct the war. And after day one, he lost $300 billion of it because it was about $300 billion that were, were in these foreign accounts that, that were frozen. And the question ever since has been, you know, is the plan just to return this money to Russia after the war? Or will we use this money to provide compensation to the victims of, of Russian aggression? And um, that, that debate is continuing. It's, it's really the issue that, that's posed by the, by the legislation that's been introduced here in the United States. I, I do think uh, under international law, there is no question that uh, first that Russia has committed aggression and that that's a, a violation of the most fundamental principle of, of international law. And second, anyone who commits aggression and in violation of international law is liable to the victims of their aggression for the damages they've inflicted. And the most recent reliable estimate of the damages in, in, inflicted by Russia on Ukraine uh, was it was issued by the World Bank about a year ago, February of last year. And the, the total at that point was $411 billion that, that Russia owed uh, to Ukraine. Uh, obviously, you know, a lot more damage has been inflicted over the past year. So that number would be much larger today. Okay, so let's step back even further. You know, yes, there's this huge tempting pot of $300 billion. And just so people understand, I guess the Russians have about $300 billion at home in foreign exchange, and they have about $300 billion overseas. Now, there's a reason why countries don't do this. There's a reason why Switzerland was viewed as a safe jurisdiction to put your ill-gotten gains or your secret money or whatever it is. Uh, by the way, folks, pro tip, it isn't anymore, but, and not just because of Russia. But, uh, but there are all sorts of fraught questions that relate to this uh, under international law, under, you know, sort of practical limitations. And the United States government was, has been very reluctant. We haven't done this with previous aggressors. So explain, first of all, what the problems are with this. Sure. So there have been two principal objections that have been offered to confiscating the Russian assets and, and providing them to the victims of, of, of Russia's aggression in Ukraine. The first is, is uh, an objection under international law that the, the, the Russian assets are, are the sovereign property of uh, the Russian Federation. And there, there's a a widely respected principle called sovereign immunity, and th those assets are supposed to be immune from being attached in a court proceeding in the United States or, or something like that. And um, the, the freezing of those assets, which occurred on, on day one after, after the conflict, um, has been generally accepted as consistent with international law, but taking the additional step of actually confiscating them, changing the ownership uh, or div divesting Russia of ownership of those assets and giving them 
to someone else. That that has been very controversial among international lawyers, and 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 articles have been written by some international lawyers claiming that 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 would that would violate the principle of sovereign immunity, and it can't be done. We've we've looked at this very carefully, and, and as have other scholars, and and conducted analyses and come to a conclusion that there are principles under international law to permit the confiscation of these assets. Um, but that that debate is ongoing, and and you know I can describe to you kind of where it stands in America today and where it stands in Europe. Uh, the second issue has been more of a practical consideration about how will other governments react if the Russian assets in the United States and Europe are confiscated, and more specifically, won't a country like China, which has not just billions, but perhaps you know over a trillion dollars in in, in uh, the United States and you know probably a huge amount in Europe as well, won't they react to this by pulling their money out? And um, what would what would the impact of that be on our economy and uh, the, the continued use of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency? And, and the Europeans have very similar concerns about what would the impact be on, on the euro uh, if, if they were to confiscate the assets. So those are the two practical considerations. And I could sort of put it in perspective. The, the first one about international law is I would call it mainly a State Department concern. They're, they're the guardians of international law. The questions about the impact on financial markets and, and the U.S. dollar, that's more of a Treasury Department concern. So we've had to address those arguments that have come from both those directions. Hey, just a quick question, and, and we haven't even gotten into um, how Congress is trying to address this or anything else, but one thing I noticed in the research for this is that where the White House and the State Department seem to have come along, the Treasury Department doesn't seem there yet. Is that the problem in all of these countries, that there's this divide between the, the money people and the policy people? My sense is the situation is different in every country, but I, I would say here in the United States, uh, this debate has been going on for you know at least a year and a half. And initially, the Biden administration was was resistant to the idea. And, uh, you know, a lot of the resistance wasn't just, you know, among, at the political appointee level. It was also, you know, career staff at both the State Department and, and the Treasury Department that, that had big reservations. At this point, though, my strong sense is that the Biden administration has bought into this, this concept. And so at, at this point, there seems to be a consensus in Washington that this is the way to go, that the, these Russian assets should be uh, marked for confiscation and, and ultimately given to Ukraine rather than returned to Russia. And, you know, if you, if you read the press coverage, the, the Biden administration is now encouraging the other G7 governments and the European Union to adopt the same idea. And you know, so, so far, they've not succeeded. You know, it, was, it was in the press that they, their intention was to get a declaration out of the G7 on the second anniversary of the invasion, which was... Uh, just a few days ago, as we record this. And th- there was an announcement uh, on, on the second anniversary, but it, it was uh, it, it was pretty weak. I mean, there's not yet consensus within the G7 on this. So they have some diplomatic work ahead of them. Uh, there's also work that lies ahead in Washington, because uh, today the president does not have the, the, the legal authority to confiscate the assets. Congress would have to enact legislation to give the president that authority. So let's stay on the objections a little bit. So you raised the issue of, you know, that there's this de-dollarization concern and that China might pull its assets out of the United States. Wouldn't that be hard for China to pull all of its assets out of the United States? Is that just as simple as like, you know, you and I going to the bank and making a withdrawal or transferring our money? It seems like that would be much more complicated for an entire country to pull hundreds of billions of dollars uh, of assets out. And second, wouldn't it be kind of a deterrent if we actually did this in the case of Ukraine and Russia? 
to China because we would obviously, this tool would now be in law and there would be precedent for doing this in the case of if China wanted to invade Taiwan. So my, my opinion is that you're correct, that you know, part, part of the reason, you know, for, first of all, the, the notion that th- this would be profoundly unsettling to, to China and, and you know, other countries with assets in the United States, it was, it was two years ago now that the Russian assets were blocked or the, the technical term is immobilized. They, they were immobilized in the United States. And, you know, China didn't react to that by immediately pulling its assets out. And, and, and the idea that China would only care if their assets were confiscated, but would be fine with them being frozen indefinitely in, in U.S. bank accounts, that, that doesn't make sense to me. It, it has to be the case that, that China would be unhappy if their assets were frozen. And we, we've seen their reaction to, to that happening two years ago. Uh, but beyond that, you know, I, I'm not, I, I don't profess to be an expert on global financial markets, but, we, you know, we, we've got some experts out there who, who, who are bona fide experts and, and, and uh, have studied this and, and you know, will uh, strongly assert that this could be done safely for, for the U.S. dollar. And, and I'm including here Larry Summers, who was Secretary of the Treasury under President Obama, Bob Zellick, who was World Bank President uh, uh, under President Bush. They, they've been very active in advocating this idea. The idea that sovereign immunity can protect you from asset seizure, didn't Russia violate Ukraine's sovereignty? How do you justify hiding behind sovereign immunity when you just violated the sovereignty of a country by invading it and, and killing hundreds of thousands of its citizens and destroying its infrastructure, targeting and destroying its infrastructure, and then all of a sudden you're going to cry that, you know, we're taking your sovereign assets away? Well, those who say that, that there's no basis under international law for confiscating these assets uh, would basically reject the argument you just made. The, the supporters of confiscating the assets uh, rely on exactly that argument. Um, there is a concept under international law called countermeasures. And the idea of countermeasures is that when a country has violated its, its international legal obligations, other countries who are harmed by that action are entitled to do things that would otherwise be illegal under international law in order to persuade the government that's violating its international obligations to come back into compliance with those obligations. So when I talked earlier about uh, a a theory that's been developed to justify taking this action, the the theory is called countermeasures, and and it it rests on precisely the principle you just described. I want to stay with this as well, Stephen, because I think this is really fraught. And you know, I, as I'm sure you can easily guess, both Mark and I are like, take the money, give it to Ukraine, do it now. But then you start to think about the implications of this. And it, it, Mark mentioned the de-dollarization. I mean, we we are heavily exposed internationally. So let's think about this. Donald Trump is the president, not somebody popular, not in America, of course, but in Europe and elsewhere, like Joe Biden. And we have to do something about Iran. Iran hits U.S. ship, U.S. assets, U.S. troops. And so we decide we're going to hit the Iranians really hard. Russia has a pretty serious group of buddies there. The Chinese, obviously the Iranians, up and down maybe Turkey, certain Arab states that are in non-compliance now with sanctions against Russia. I mean, aren't we opening a Pandora's box potentially? I know I'm making an argument against what I want to see happening, but I, I do worry about, you know, you talk about reciprocity. Uh, there's reciprocity that can be used against us too. Exactly. And you're not the first person to articulate that, that concern. I mean, that concern has been wrapped up in the larger argument about aren't you going to harm the, the, the status of the U.S. dollar 
as the world's reserve currency. And it's not an insubstantial concern, but I, I think we can all agree that uh, the United States does not commit naked aggression. American allies do not commit naked aggression. You know, the, the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, uh, ruled that uh, in, in March of 2022 that, that uh, there was no justification under the Genocide Convention for Russia to have invaded Ukraine, and it ordered Russia to suspend military operations. Uh, Russia has been in defiance of a world court ruling ever since March of 2022. I mean, there's, there's a very clear case here of Russia acting uh, in, in complete violation of uh, the basic principles of international law. Yes, it is foreseeable that, that the United States and its allies may conduct operations at, at some point in the future that others object to, that, that some will claim are aggression. But, you know, I, I think the United States government is satisfied that that's never the case when, when we conduct operations, we do it in a lawful manner. And so I, I think we'd be on solid legal ground and, and Americans should be confident that we would be on solid legal ground. And then there's the practical consideration of, you know, okay, so, you know, I don't know how much money the Federal Reserve has on deposit in Moscow, but or in Tehran. I think it's probably zero in Tehran, uh, but um, and, and close to zero in Moscow, and, and not very much in Beijing. So, you know, there there is the practical consideration that you know the, the you know the U.S. dollar and the euro are the the, the, the principal currencies in use around the world, and um, you know. The threat that the, you know some other country is going to freeze the accounts of the U.S. government or maybe confiscate them is one that uh, is not a very substantial threat uh, to us. So uh, I want to revisit something here, not because it's directly tied to this, but because it's a big, fun AEI bugaboo. A lot of people who are listening to this now will say to themselves, oh, yeah, well, but that's not what our vulnerability is. Our vulnerability is the fact that the People's Republic of China owns vast amounts of U.S. debt, and that gives them leverage over us. Even you know this story, Mark, you know this story, but I want to just put this in here for our listeners. We had a great conversation many years ago in which economists and military leaders were present, and the military leaders expressed this concern. Well, but, but you know, I mean, if you start messing around in financial markets, don't the Chinese have leverage over us? And the economists started laughing, including, by the way, the man who would subsequently become the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, and, and said, what are you kidding? That gives us leverage over them, not the other way around. They don't want those assets to become valueless, right? Because they're important assets. So they're not going to diminish the value of the U.S. dollar. So that's sort of a little, a little, um, insert I want to put in here for people to understand how these kinds of leverage work. Yes. I mean, this, this is precisely the point Mark was making earlier about, uh, isn't it the case that, yes, we need to worry about foreign investors feel uncomfortable putting their money in the United States. But the notion that they can just pull their money out, what are they going to do with it? If you're China, you're going to sell your dollar holdings and invest in Indian rupees and, you know, a bank account in New Delhi. Um, there are huge risks associated with that. So the, I mean, the reality is that when you have that much money, um, you don't really have alternatives uh, but <laughs> to, to the United States and Europe for, for investing it. But couldn't they retaliate? And I mean, no one's concerned about, you know, Russia retaliating because most American businesses have pulled out their investments. I mean, there's 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 still some there's a, there's a certainly in the oil sector, but there's a lot of people who pulled out. Russia's seized some some U.S. businesses anyway over there. So, there, you know, there's not a lot of risk there, but there's a lot of American businesses engaged in China that have 
private assets there. Isn't it possible that they they don't necessarily have to respond by seizing our sovereign assets? They could respond by retaliating against American businesses in some way. There are disproportionate ways that they could retaliate. I mean, there, there are risks that they could respond. Both, I'm not sure that China would necessarily do that for Russia, but if this model could be applied in the case of a Taiwan invasion to deter a Taiwan invasion, aren't there uh, risks there as well? I do think uh, you know China is a much more complicated case than Russia because the um, you know the U.S. has much more economic exposure in China than than it's ever had in Russia. But first of all, I mean Vladimir Putin has threatened that if we confiscate the Russian assets, uh, that he will retaliate by confiscating Western investment in Russia. And I mean, you're right that many U.S. companies have announced their exit from Russia, but many of them are, are still trying to sell their assets in Russia, and you know, they're finding there are very few buyers. Uh, so the, <laughs> that, that, that's why they're still. <laughs> You know, maybe they've suspended operations, but their assets are still there and they're still trying to figure out how to offload them. So there is something left for, for Putin to confiscate if he, if he wants to do that. That's a, a, a small version of what we would see in the case of a, a China scenario. But I, you know, I don't think we need to debate the China scenario because hopefully China is never going to invade Taiwan. And I do say to people that, you know, if, if you're looking for the, you know, the leading indicator that China is getting ready to invade Taiwan, I, I think when they start pulling their money out of the United States so that it can't be blocked, the way Russia's money was blocked, that's when we know they're actually serious about about going forward. And then we need to mobilize accordingly. But it could be a deterrent. You know, just like helping Ukraine defend itself against Russian aggression could be a deterrent against China invading Taiwan. This kind of financial warfare, you know, this kind of financial penalty uh, could be a deterrent to China as well, couldn't it? I, I think so, yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the authority the president has. Uh, so there is a bill before Congress. It's called the Repo Act. Um, and I want you to tell us about that. But obviously, the first thing that needed to happen here is that the Biden administration's opposition needed to be changed. And they really went 180 on this. Why were they against and why did they change their mind? So first, let me explain. The, the legislation is necessary because today the president has authority to confiscate foreign assets uh, if the United States is at war. If Congress had declared war, we were conducting military operations against a foreign government, the president would have existing statutory authority to confiscate the assets of that hostile government. That same authority doesn't exist if we're not at war. And so the Repo Act, which, which you mentioned, would expand the president's authority to apply in, in, in the case of, of uh, in a case like the one we face with Russia and Ukraine. It's rare for an administration to object to Congress trying to give the president more authority, more legal authority to do something. Because, you know, even if the administration thinks we'll never use this authority, um, you know, that, that's not a reason not to have the authority that, you know, they, they figure they can trust themselves not to abuse the authority. So I, I was always a little mystified that the, the Biden administration initially was resistant uh, to the idea. I don't think they ever publicly declared their opposition, but the signals that they were sending were were unfavorable. That has changed in the last four or five months. Uh, and and uh, I think, you know, press Stories on this have suggested that that the, the trouble they're having in persuading Congress to approve U.S. continued U.S. military assistance to Ukraine is part of the rationale why the you know the Biden administration feels they need to be doing more to to, to signal their support for Ukraine and and I think they've recognized that um, this, this is something else they can do. I also think it, it's it's kind of embarrassing for them, you know, difficult for them to maintain the position that you know this is the most vital issue on, on the foreign policy horizon, absolutely critical that the United States do something about it, but we're dead set against uh, confiscating Russia's assets. Um, I, I don't think they ever wanted to publicly have to say that. And, and now they've, they've uh, kind of 
rethought their position to the point where actually they'd say we, we, we favor the enactment of the Repo Act at this point. First of all, I love the name for people who don't know it. It's the Rebuilding Economic Prosperity and Opportunity for Ukraine Act, REPO, which is a great name. I would, however, uh, suggest that in the light of recent events, we rename it the Navalny Act, just like the, we called it the Magnitsky Act when we uh, authorized sanctions. I think that letting Vladimir Putin know that this is the direct result of his murder of Alexei Navalny would be a positive outcome. Uh, let me ask you a practical question. There's $300 billion in these assets that have been seized, not just by the United States, but by other governments. My understanding is there's only 8 to $39 billion of those are here in the U.S. Is that correct? Or are, So does this require how much of this can we seize here in the United States and how much of this requires uh, our European uh, allies who are not usually as uh, as forthright as uh, as we are and courageous to do the same thing? I don't think there's ever been a proper accounting of how much Russian money there is that's, that's been immobilized around the world. The number that gets thrown around most commonly is, is about $300 billion worldwide. The one solid number is that there's about $200 billion in Belgium which sounds a little strange, but um, there, there's a single bank there called Euroclear that, that uh, is involved in processing um, payments. And for, for some reason, 200 billion of the 300 billion is in that single bank in, in Belgium. How much is in the United States? Uh, you see varying numbers. I, I think if you ask the Biden administration, they'd say it's about 5 billion uh, that, that's actually in the United States. So one of the things that emerges when you look at this is the United States can exercise uh, political and, and economic leadership here. But what the United States ultimately can contribute financially uh, from Russian assets is a pittance compared to what can be contributed from the, Europe from, from the Europeans, given that that's where most of the Russian money is. So in a way, the United States is, is I mean, what's at issue here is does the United States want to set an example for the Europeans. And, and, and as a by the way, I should say, the actual example setter here is Canada. Uh, Canada, over a year ago, enacted legislation authorizing the confiscation of, of Russian assets in Canada. Uh, so, I mean, I guess one way of looking at the challenge for the United States is, are, are we prepared to be as bold as Canada in, uh, in, in taking on the nature of the Russian Good assets? God. <laughs> Wait, but, but didn't you tell me that even though the Canadians have the legal authority, they haven't actually done it yet? That's correct. Well, and, and there's a wrinkle in their legal authority that they, they don't want to do it alone. They want to do it in combination with uh, allies. And, you know, that's the position of the Biden administration, too, that it's not their legal position, but, you know, I, I think... As a practical matter, they, they don't want the United States to proceed alone. They want us to do it in coordination with allies. And that Treasury Department concern about the impact on the U.S. dollar, obviously that will be much mitigated if no one who's worried about this is able to say, well, I better put my money in Europe because it'll be safe there uh, and take it out of America. Because if, if, you know, if Europe does it at the same time as the United States, then you know, there isn't that option of moving money from the United States to Europe. And, and uh, you know, both currencies will be equally affected. So... Tell us where this is in Congress. I mean, one of the things that I know I've urged very strongly when talking to our friends on Capitol Hill about this is that whatever package ends up coming out with the Ukraine aid, the Ukraine military drawdown, um, uh, should actually include the Repo Act. Uh, where Where is this? What's going on? And you can also say, I have no idea because no one has any idea what the hell is going on on Capitol Hill. Well, I, I do think the, the fate of the Repo Act is somewhat mixed up with the question of what's going to happen to the, the Ukraine funding. But there, there are freestanding bills that were introduced in the House and the Senate. They were, the bill was introduced in the House by Mike McCall, who's the chairman 
uh, the, he's the Republican chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He, he has Democratic co-sponsors, so his bill is bipartisan. Uh, likewise, in the Senate, the ranking Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jim Risch, is the lead sponsor of the Repo Act. Uh, he, he has uh, Democratic co-sponsors, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, who's, who's a member of the, the committee, and others. Both bills have been marked up in committee. Um, in, in the Foreign Relations Committee, there was one no vote. Um, Senator Rand Paul of, of Kentucky, um, which probably doesn't surprise you to hear that. Uh, there were two no votes at the House committee markup. Uh, th- those two no votes were, were cast by Democrats on the, on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. But, you know, in both cases, overwhelming support in, in both committees. And as I, as I indicated, the, the, the signals the Biden administration is sending are that they favor enactment of this legislation as well. So I, d- I don't think at this point the, the ultimate outcome is in doubt. Uh, you know, I think the pieces are in place for it to be enacted. Uh, you know, the question is, what will the vehicle be? Will it be the Ukraine funding bill? Will it be some other, you know, continuing resolution, or some other appropriations measure? Will it be the National Defense Authorization Act later this year? I don't know. But, you know, the, at this point, the legislation commands broad support in the United States. And I, and I think we have to credit uh, Chairman McCall and, and Ranking Member Risch for the leadership they provided, because you know, when they started down this road, it was very controversial and it wasn't clear that they would succeed. And, and really, they changed minds and, and, and built coalitions to support the measure. And, and uh, I, I think their legislation is in pretty good shape. And so now the, the, the debate really shifts to Europe because, you know, the Europeans are not yet at the same place. And um, persuading them to take the same step, uh, to create the same authority, and then, then to you know, collectively exercise that authority with the United States, that, that, that will be the next challenge once... Uh, the Repo Act is enacted. So the name of the act is Rebuilding Economic Prosperity and Opportunity for Ukraine Act, in addition to being clever, sort of suggested the purpose of, of seizing the assets, which was to help with the post-war reconstruction of Ukraine. But we're now in a situation where there's there's growing opposition to Ukraine aid on the right. We're fighting over whether we can get this latest aid package through the House. Let's say we succeed in getting a, another aid package, military aid package through the House. It's it's looking increasingly unlikely like an, a, an additional aid package of, of tens of billions of dollars could, military aid could get passed through. Um, and we don't know what's going to happen with the election and whether uh, whether Donald Trump will come in the presidency, whether he would be supportive of Ukraine aid, or even if Biden gets reelected, whether Republicans would go along again. Could this money be used instead of for reconstruction for military aid, for military purposes? Could this be uh, you know, repurposed for that uh, purpose down the line as a, after this package, how do we make sure that Ukraine isn't in the situation it's in right now where they're rationing artillery because Congress hasn't gotten off its butt and passed the, the weapons package? Well, I suppose the practical answer to your question is, well, yes, I mean, the, the money could be made available to Ukraine for as military assistance rather than for purposes of reconstruction. And of course, there are some in the United States, uh, including those who, who oppose providing US, uh, further U.S. military assistance, who say, well, let, you know, let's not, we, we shouldn't ask the taxpayer to pay for this. Let's just use Russia's money instead. It sounds like a glib answer until you recall that there's only $5 billion uh, in Russian money in the United States. So, you know, that $5 billion that of Russian money that could be repurposed uh, for military assistance uh, is a drop in the bucket compared to the the overall Ukraine account that or, you know, appropriation that's been requested, which is you know fifty or sixty billion. So I mean, it's hardly a substitute for the the assistance that's needed. But secondly, 
I, I don't want to go into the, the international law weeds with you, but the, the justification under international law for confiscating these assets is very strong. Uh, if, if they're being confiscated to satisfy uh, a debt that Russia has to Ukraine, uh, it's much weaker uh, and, 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 and frankly, much harder to, to justify and, uh, the action if, if basically we're using Russian money to, to uh, fund U.S. foreign policy or you know, European foreign policy, which, which is what we'd be doing if we were using the money in lieu of uh, foreign assistance that we would otherwise provide. Well, I guess you could, you could argue that the money could be provided to Ukraine in, in reparation for the damages done to its infrastructure and its economy and all the rest of it. And once it's in Ukrainian hands, it's up to them how to spend it. Uh, you know, if, if you have a settlement because somebody uh, trashed your car and you decide not to spend it on rebuilding your car, but uh, on something else, that's your choice. But also, couldn't this be, you know, let, let's say we get a situation a year from now where the U.S. is just not providing any more military aid. The, the opposition is such the Europeans can't shoulder the burden of providing the kind of military aid that we do. Uh, wouldn't this be a way to keep the Ukrainians uh, afloat that the Europeans could say, OK, the U.S. isn't doing it. You know, Donald Trump is saying Europe has to do more. Uh, their way of doing it is to provide Ukraine with this money uh, so that they can buy the weapons. Again, I, I can't exclude that that could happen, but I think it's very unlikely to happen. Uh, you know, the situation today is I, you know, we, we've already discussed what the argument is under international law for confiscating the money and, and using it. For reconstruction, and that's the, this countermeasures argument. Uh, you know that that idea has been accepted widely here in, in Washington. Uh, that idea has not been accepted in in Brussels and, and 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 Berlin and Paris. I mean, their international lawyers still reject that idea. And and when I said the argument is much weaker still, if you want to use the money just to provide, you know, sustain the government and and not to to compensate uh, for debts that Russia otherwise owes. So I think if we can't, if we have a hard time persuading the Europeans to go along with this, to you know, providing the money as, uh, as as compensation to the victims, it, it will be much harder still to persuade them to confiscate the money in order to you know, fund uh, military assistance to Ukraine. I think their lawyers will, will be much harder to bring along on that because, as I say, the, the argument that you have to make to do that is, is much weaker. Um, so I, I think... It's going to be hard enough to get the Europeans to do what what the Repo Act would, would enable the United States to do. I think it'd be vastly harder to get them to agree to spend the money just to arm and, and sustain the Ukrainian government. Exit question from me, Stephen. Okay, this passes in the U.S. Congress. Um, we make some progress potentially with the Europeans, uh, and uh, and we get we get a, a consensus, let's say, of Ukraine supporting countries in in the in the West and and maybe even in Asia as well. Um, what do the Russians do? Putin has threatened to retaliate, um, and you know he's threatened that he'd retaliate by by confiscating Western investment in Russia. Um, as Mark pointed out, you know <laughs> most of the investors have already decided they're exiting, and and uh, you know and, and most of them have written off. Their investments. So um, I think there, there will be some complaints about that. But uh, th those who invested in Russia, you know, did it with their eyes open and and, uh, and most of them have taken big losses already. So um, I think that's, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think we can allow that concern to stand in the way of doing the right thing by Ukraine. And, you know, let, let me just flip this around. I mean, 
someday this war will end. And at that point, the world's attention will, will turn to how do we rebuild the economy of Ukraine? How do we put these people back to work, get them on their feet? And at that point, you know, are we going to just release $300 billion and you know, hand it back to the Russians and say, you know, good job, here's your money now, you know, and then we, we will foot the bill for, for rebuilding Ukraine? I mean, I suppose that's Vladimir Putin's answer, right? Give me my money back and you pay to rebuild the country I destroyed. But uh, I just don't think that would be a sustainable answer. So I, I, I think there's an inevitability to this that this Russian and I, and I think in Moscow, they even know this, that they're never getting this money back. This money will, will be used uh, to rebuild Ukraine. And, um, you know, we, we are, we are, they've accepted that, um, at least intellectually, and, and we ought to accept it, too, and, and, and move in that direction, not least because it would be reassuring to Ukraine. Well, in addition, if this war ends, it's going to be because the Russian military has suffered such devastating losses to its military capabilities. Why would we give them $300 billion to rebuild their military capabilities? The one national security benefit, one of the major national security benefits to the United States is that the Russian military threat has been decimated and the threat to NATO and the threat to Europe is is, is lessened. So I don't know why we would want to rebuild the Russian military by, by giving them this money. Talk a little bit about, you know, and my exit question is, the effectiveness of the sanctions that we put on Russia. The Biden administration just put a lot of sanctions, new sanctions in response to the Navalny uh, murder. You're a sanctions expert. And and how is this different in the sense that the sanctions are intended to punish Russia, to deter it from bad behavior? They haven't really worked uh, in, the, in that sense. This has a different purpose. This isn't actually a, a, a it's supposed to be changing Russian behavior. This is supposed to actually punish them. Punishing them is not the primary purpose, but it's it's to actually help Ukraine. So this is distinct from uh, distinct from economic sanctions, isn't it? So on the, on your final point, yes, I, I agree. Uh, the right way to think of this, this is providing compensation uh, to the victims of, of Russian aggression. This is not about punishing Russia, uh, you know, the, the confiscation of the assets. The immobilization of the assets uh, was a sanction, um, and that was to deny Russia resources uh, that it would otherwise be able to use to, to conduct the war. Uh, and, and I think you'd have to agree that if, if Russia had an extra $300 billion in change, they would probably be spending it in ways right now that, that would support their war effort and, and, and be detrimental to Ukraine. So it's, it's a good thing that they don't have access to that $300 billion. Um, sort of on your more fundamental question of, you know, have the sanctions worked? Um, I know, Mark, actually, you're a sanctions expert, too. I know you've written on the, on the subject. Um, and, and that's a question that's often asked about sanctions that we impose on all manner of countries. You know, have, have they worked? And I, I think usually it comes back to the question of, you know, what what was the object of the sanctions? What, you know, what was the intention? Uh, you know, if, if the intention of sanctions on Russia was to persuade them to end their war in Ukraine, um, yes, you know, so far... The, the sanctions have failed to achieve that. But I think there was another, you know, at least equally important purpose of the sanctions, which was to um, constrain Russia's ability to conduct the war, uh, to to limit uh, the resources available to them, to, to, to minimize their mil military capabilities. And I think it's unquestionable that the, the sanctions have had that effect. I mean, you know, Russia is, is doing pretty well considering, uh, you know, the limited resources that, that it has, uh, you know, the limited number of allies that it has. Um, they would be doing a lot better if um, all the sanctions that are in place uh, hadn't been put in place, I would say. This is great. Thank you. Really, a nice, lucid, clear explanation. I can see why they like you at Georgetown. <laughs> and the, and the Plutkaradamaker household. 
It's true. <laughs> yes. Well, here there are other extenuating circumstances. <laughs> Let me just say, I, you know, I, I've been a spectator for years to these interviews that you, that you do of everybody from President Trump to Natan Sharansky, and uh, and I feel like I've been called up from the minor leagues to uh, to bat for an inning or two in the majors. Oh, don't let it go <laughs> to your head. For me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Steve. You're still in the minor leagues at home. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Stephen. Awesome. Bye. All right, Danny, how did Stephen do? Uh, he, he, did, he did fine. I will say. Um, uh, he, fine? He did, I thought he did better than fine. No, all right. Give a little bit more credit. Well, you, you, can come, you can come and kiss him goodnight tonight then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously, uh, no, one, of the things, one of the things that concerns me here, in all professional seriousness, Mark Thiessen, one of the things that really concerns me here uh, is this narrative about the Biden administration, right? In fact, I think it's really worth underscoring, given the current environment in which Joe Biden is trying to blame Ukraine's eroding position against Russia on Republicans to note what Yaro Trofimov said in our podcast, which is, the reason that the Ukrainians are not prospering as they should be in their war to defend themselves against Russian aggression is because the Biden administration has freaking slow rolled everything. And, you know, I, I, I think that point needs to be made again and again. And this interview today has illuminated the exact same thing, which is that two years into a war of aggression by a sovereign nation against another sovereign nation, the Biden administration is still not 100% all in on the notion that we shouldn't take $300 billion in sovereign Russian assets and give it to the Ukrainians. To me, that is emblematic of every single thing that they've done in this, which is a freaking day late dollar short. That is their foreign policy, except it's a year late and billions short. Well, maybe a day late and a ruble short <laughs> in this case, <laughs> right? But uh, so let me just push back as an as, a, as an aside on the uh, notion that the Ukrainians are not prospering on the battlefield. They've taken back half the territory that Russia seized. In 2023, the Russians didn't gain an inch of territory, and the Ukrainians destroyed a third of the Russian Black Sea fleet despite not having a navy. And they did that largely not because of the Biden administration, but because of the Europeans, uh, the British and the French, who gave them storm shadow missiles and the French equivalent of the storm shadow missiles, which are the equivalent of the long-range attackums that the Biden administration will not provide uh, the Ukrainians. And that allowed them to hold the Black Sea fleet in danger. And as a result, the Russians have pulled most of their navy out of range of the Ukrainians and pulled them back, which is a big military victory. So there was a huge victory on the Black Sea for Ukraine last year that it gets completely overlooked, but I digress. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, the Biden administration, as Yarrow pointed out, I think one of the most interesting things from our podcast with Yarrow is that he pointed out that if we had given them everything, despite the fact that we're still not giving them long-range attackums, like, you know, they're considering doing that now. It's like, okay, two years into the war, we're considering giving them these long-range weapons. If we had given them everything we're giving them now, the Abrams tanks, the Patriots, the longer-range HIMARS, that 
if we had given them that now, they would have, and, and we had done that right in the first few months when the Russians were on their heels and pulling back from Kiev after the, their failed assault, this war would be over by now. Um, so it's the Biden administration that has elongated this conflict and and turned it into what, what is derisively called a forever war. And now we got a problem, which is that the Russians have dug in, they've mined this front, and it's much harder because when you let people build up fortifications, it's hard to cross them. So I, I want to do a podcast soon. I'd like to bring Jack Keane or Ben Hodges or one of uh, some really smart military leaders to explain to us how does Ukraine win this militarily? Because I th- I think that that's there's this concept out there now that this is just a, a frozen conflict that this line is going to yeah. stay there. It's never going to change. The Ukrainians can't win. Maybe the Russians can't win, or they can win if we lose our will over time. But uh, the Ukrainians can't win this, and I don't think that's true. Um, but I don't have the military expertise to say how it's going to happen. I know the people we respect who have military expertise believe that they can win it. And so I think one of the upcoming podcasts we'd like to do is how does actually Ukraine win this war? Great. I think that's a great idea. And, you know, I, I knew you had to have one once in a while. So... <laughs> <laughs> This was such a nice podcast. I wasn't going to say this, but, you know, I have to put up with this for an hour once a week. Stephen has to put up with that every every day, 24 hours a day. Barbs, Danny. It's not, I, I suffer them briefly, but this is this is Stephen's reality, guys. This is yeah, this is Stephen's reality. Day. I can't wait till we have Pamela. <laughs> Thanks, folks, for being with us. As always, see you next week and take care. Take care. Bye. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.